Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Now We're Talking. This is episode 101, and I'm Rob Danish from the University of Waterloo. This is a podcast about communication skills. So the title of today's episode is Can Conflict Bring Us Closer? And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what constitutes kind of destructive conflict and what constitutes constructive conflict and why conflict can be a good thing and how it can be a good thing. Um, so... I want to start today by talking about one kind of thing that early with my students, I try to, to draw their attention to um, one kind of feature of conversations that most people don't pay enough attention to. But here's what I tell my students early on in the semester in some of our classes. In any conversation, uh, each of us is responding to both the content level of the conversation, and by content level, I mean to what the discussion or conversation is ostensibly about. So is it about money? Is it about my kid's homework? Is it about politics? Is it about my partner not picking up the groceries? So that's the content level. So we're always responding to both the content level, but also we're responding to to signals about our relationship, what the relational level of the conversation. The relational level of conversation is how each person sees themselves in relationship to the other person. So the content level is really explicit and it tends to be fully verbalized. And at the content level, we're often kind of full of concrete references to real world events. Okay, how much money do you earn? What's good or bad about this particular policy? Did you do your homework or didn't you do your homework? That stuff gets stated in language um, and it references stuff in in the world. The relationship level is often implicit and it's largely unspoken or in other words, conveyed in the tone of our voice or our communication style or in nonverbal signals. So if you're warm or cold, or if you're teasing or sarcastic, if you're animated or quiet, those kind of contextual features of nonverbal components of communication make up the kind of relationship level of the conversation. Uh, At the content level, we're kind of passing messages, we're, we're articulating things in messages. At the relationship level, we're kind of using nonverbal signals to make meaning. So uh, when uh, two participants in a conversation are essentially in agreement at the relationship level, so when each person is happy with how they think they're being characterized by the other person, the content of the conversation goes well. It tends to not be much of a problem. We get problems, so if you... If you are in agreement at the relationship level, you can solve problems, you can perform tasks, you can make new ideas, you can get stuff done. Um, when there's an unspoken disagreement at the relationship level, conflict can disrupt the content conversation. So if you you have if you don't quite like the way the other person sees you, or the other person doesn't quite like the way you're seeing them, you get conflict at the content level. And that's because one or even both of the parties find it hard to focus on what they're meant to be talking about because they're actually engaged in this unspoken, unacknowledged struggle to elicit the other person's respect or affection or maybe just their attention. So there's some relationship component that's unspoken that they're struggling with and that it has their attention so that they can't really focus on the content level. 
And that means the disagreement either becomes kind of deadlocked or it explodes into like a really damaging fight. Um, when marital conversations go badly, it's often because one of the partners is only tracking the content level of the conversation. And that partner isn't paying attention to something that's going on on the relationship level. Uh, I mean, it's possible to, to err in the other direction too. Like one partner could have an exaggerated vigilance or a focus on the relationship level and then misinterpret what the other person says. You know, they could see an insult where like none was really made and, and think that they're focused on the, the or they just miss the, the real content. Uh, so it might not be very surprising to discover that men are more likely to be guilty of making the kind of error where they don't pay attention to the relationship level. And while and women are more likely to, to pay too much attention to the relationship level and not enough attention to the content level. So men tend to become so absorbed in their own words that they basically don't even notice the relationship signals their partners kind of sending non-verbally. Uh, husbands like think about themselves way more than they think about their partners, essentially. And uh, wives, on the other hand, think about their partners more than often than they think about themselves. So, you know, the confusion, though, can occur in both directions. It doesn't really matter. It's not just strictly a male-female thing. Um, it, it, whatever the case, a person is going to get most upset by the dispute. Well, okay, it, it, the person that's going to get most upset by any argument or any conversation is the person that's most sensitive to the relationship level. And a disagreement is more likely to be unproductive when the partners are of a, a misalignment in the attention they're paying to the relationship level. On the other hand, a disagreement can be really productive when both partners are paying the same attention to both levels. The question is, how do you do that? If you've got a particular, a particularly acute sensitivity to relationship signals, if you're trying not to let them, you have to try not to let them dominate your perception of every conversation. So you have to kind of balance that out. So if your partner seems upset or preoccupied, you don't have to assume it's about you. You can listen to what they say and engage in the content of the conversation. But on the other hand, if you think of yourself as someone who can get so wrapped up in the content of a conversation, they don't pay any attention to your partner's feelings, then you have to try and pay more attention to those nonverbal signals, the pitch of their voice, their facial expression, whatever. Uh, otherwise, you're going to hear your partner's words, but you're going to miss what they're really saying at the, at the relationship level. So conflict br brings us closer when things are aligned at the relationship level. When you, you there's an equal amount of attention being paid to relationship level, there's an agreement at the relationship level. Things uh, Conflict drives us further apart when there's a kind of misalignment or misattention to the relationship level, not at the content level. The content level is really not the source of whether um, a conflict drives us apart or brings us closer together. So here's what we know, like constructive conflicts play a really productive role in romantic relationships. They also play a really productive role in workplace or professional relationships. That's because work is never just about work. It's not Work is, is more than work for everybody. The jobs we do are always bound up with our feelings, good feelings, bad feelings, whatever, about the people we work with. So that means at the office, even more than at home, we feel a, a great degree of pressure to avoid disagreements and the stress and negative feelings that often go with them. So modern workplaces tend to place a premium on getting along with one another. And, you know, that's a good thing. It's fine. But it means that even when our frustrations with someone's behavior is perfectly justified, uh, 
the smart thing to do can be to hide it. And so we get situations where there's unaired conflict. But unaired conflict, of course, doesn't just disappear. Uh, it manifests itself in office politics, actually. So that's where we get the phrase passive aggression from. Off, uh, like workplaces that are uh, full of passive aggressive behavior are also full of these kind of unaired conflicts that have been channeled in different directions. So really good companies make a determined effort to get their internal conflicts out into the open. They also create structures to carefully manage them, manage that conflict, so that workers can be brought closer together. If you want to learn about this, um, Southwest Airlines is, um, is a really great example of a company that proactively avoids passive aggressive behavior in the workplace and tries to get conflict out in the open. Um, Jody Gattel is a management professor at Brandeis, did a bunch, bunch of work on Southwest Airlines and how and why they're good at sort of getting those conflicts out in the open. Um, you know, the, the assumption that Southwest makes is essentially that argument is kind of inevitable in any activity. And when you're running an airline, there's like a lot of close and complex coordination that are required. And if you want to turn mutual frustration into kind of antipathy, resentment, and passive aggressive behavior, then you hide them. But if you want to manage them constructively, you kind of air them out directly. You got to kind of you got to have the conflict directly. Um, and then what's unique about Southwest is, of course, they, they're, they're really proactive about that conflict. Uh, so if you work at a place with lots of passive-aggressive behavior, it's not going to be a very productive place to work. Um, so until recently, academics that studied management assumed that workplace conflict was basically bad for productivity. But as with um, marriages, there's now an increasing recognition that conflict can have positive effects. And that avoiding conflict is, is harmful. So in a conflict avoidant workplace, staff or employees can think of conflict as dangerous and destructive and therefore something to be shunned. And that results in differences of opinion being channeled into these passive aggressive forms of behavior. Um, so the challenge for an organization is to ensure that its employees conceive of conflict as something that's not just this personal rivalry kind of personal attack thing that gets uh, passive aggressively channeled in other directions. In order to, to meet that challenge, so academics or scholars will make a distinction between task conflict, and guess what? That's the content of a conversation. Task conflict is when you have an argument over how to solve a problem or, or make a decision. So there's a, there's a content level disagreement. Uh, and relationship conflict. That's when things get personal. So task conflict, even when it's heated, can be collaborative and productive. How? If the participants care about solving the same problems, it tends to be productive. Uh, task conflict can really flush out new information. It can stimulate critical thinking. It it's, can be really good. Relationship conflict tends to be inherently competitive, and it's usually destructive in a workplace. So personally conflicted groups make bad decisions and the people in them feel less happy and less motivated. That holds true in studies of students, professionals, blue collar workers, executives all over the place. So the border between task conflict and relationship conflict is a messy one. And you can see why at first I tell my students about the any conversation has the content level and the relationship level. Well, because that matters for how we negotiate conflict or how conflict can bring us closer together.
So evidence suggests that when people interpret disagreements as a personal attack, their cognitive function is actually impaired. They tend to become rigid in their thinking. They cling to the first position they chose, even when it's shown to be wrong. They engage in what's called biased information processing, where new information is only absorbed insofar as it fortifies their position. So basically, they become exclusively focused on proving themselves right rather than helping the group to be right. And that makes the group itself more stupid, like less likely to make good decisions. Um, so a difference in mindset can explain why task conflict can tip over into relationship conflict. Uh, so we can you can draw on the kind of silence, science of stress to, to make sense of this. There's a difference between what's called a threat state and a challenge state. So when people evaluate a potentially demanding task, let's say uh, making a public speech or a student writing a very long paper, they make a calculation about whether they have the resources to deal with it. If they feel they do, I've got enough material to write this difficult paper, they go into a heightened state of mental and physiological readiness. That's called the challenge state. If they, if they feel like they might be overwhelmed by the task's complexity, they focus on fending off the task, and that's called the threat state. Challenge state and threat states have different physiological markers. So in a challenge state, the heart beats faster and also becomes more efficient. You maximize the amount of blood that can pump to the brain. In a threat state, the heart beats faster, but it doesn't pump more blood, basically. The blood vessels in the heart raise resistance and they constrict the flow. Uh, so there's a distinctive sensation of anxiety in the threat state of being agitated and trapped at the same time. While the challenge state has a different kind of anxiety. It's the kind of anxiety that converts into physical and cognitive kind of horsepower, basically. And in lab experiments, people in challenge states have superior kind of motor control. They perform better on mentally demanding tasks. Even people in, in threat states do worse. Um, so we can think about how do people respond to disagreement in a group setting or a professional group setting. So if you monitor people's physiological responses, and again, remember back to what I was saying about the kind of relationship state, the, the relationship level of a conversation, it's the nonverbal signals. That's what's conditioning the relationship state. Um, okay, so if we monitor a person's physiological response to a, a, a disagreement, the more that each person's cardiovascular measures indicate that they've switched into a threat state, the less likely they are to shift from their initial opinion and the more likely they are to screen out information that didn't help them win an argument. While people in challenge states are more open to divergent viewpoints and more willing to revise their assumptions. So here's the key for conflict bringing us close together. We have to keep people in a challenge state and not in a threat state. So if people feel challenged but not threatened, that means they're confident they can handle the disagreement without losing face, and they can take a looser grip on their own arguments. That prevents the discussion from degenerating into a personal kind of competition, and it's what keeps the conversation focused on the content level. Um, so different managers will approach conflict differently. Some try and avoid it. Others can kind of foster a culture of confrontation uh, there's lots of evidence out there about a confrontational culture and how it can facilitate rapid decision-making. Uh, but those kind of competitive professional cultures also encourage kind of fierce personal competition, and that can distract from the task at hand. Um, 
So the sweet spot is a kind of culture in which conflicts are played out in the open, but everyone is focused on the group being right rather than pro proving themselves right. So it's a kind of culture in which disagreement is a challenge to be met. It's not a threat to be repelled, essentially. So if you're a relatively junior employee in a company and there's lots of toxic confrontation that results in this really competitive, threatening back and forth, or if there's lots of passive aggressive politics, uh, that's a bad situation. That's a company that's gonna make bad decisions. So instead you need to kind of try to, you know, there's not much you can do if you're a junior employee, by the way, in, in that kind of situation, you're kind of screwed. If you're a leader in that kind of situation, you can do a lot more. You can kind of try and model positive disagreements with kind of close colleagues. And you can let everyone know implicitly and explicitly that people at this workplace can disagree vigorously and they can still get along. This is what I try and do in my own role as chair. Um, it's not working these days. There's a lot of conflict in, in my department and the conflict is in the threat state. There's all sorts of, um, there's misalignment and disagreement at the relational a level of conversation and so there's no focus on the content of conversations we're not making good decisions it's kind of a nightmare um you have to sort of convey to other people that you work with that if you disagree with them openly it's not because you don't respect them it's because you do respect them so in a workplace where tough decisions have to be taken or made quickly communication needs to be direct and sometimes directness is abrasive because there's not much time for subtlety or politeness. Um, like for example, hospital doctors, when they're preparing junior doctors, junior medics, they prepare them for a kind of blunt, abrasive form of communication because they don't want those junior doctors to feel personally persecuted when they're engaged in that kind of conversation. Organizations can also, you can introduce a simple process that can allow frustrations to be aired and resolved. Um, Southwest, like I was saying before, has this proactive approach uh, where they have these, um, these they call them come to Jesus meetings, where they have to work out a disagreement between two or more people in, that are working on something for Southwest. It, it's, um, the meetings are officially called information gathering sessions, but in, internally in the company, they call them the come to Jesus meetings. They have this regular format, and here's the format. It's super simple. One side gives their version of the problem, the other side gives theirs, and then you talk about it. And you talk until there's a consensus on a way forward that you reach. Um, it's not so difficult to imagine that as a kind of a kind of method for uh, for dealing with conflict. Um, so the you know. People have to feel, okay, so there has to be an alignment and agreement at the relationship level, lest the conflict become destructive. And people have to stay in a challenge state, not the threat state. John Gottman, who I've talked about uh, before on this podcast, has claimed that the behavior most deadly to a relationship is contempt because contempt represents a kind of attack on another person without any focus on the problem. And without any pretense of there being even a common goal. Um, I actually think that Goffman, Goffman is, is partially right, but all emotions have social information in them. Even with the difficult negative emotions like contempt, 
you get a glimpse of the other person's perspective and you can get a sense of their dissatisfaction and their pain. And that doesn't mean that negativity should always be interpreted sympathetically. Sometimes the information you're getting is that this person can't be trusted or that they're not committed to you, that they don't trust you. And sometimes you don't need resolution and maybe you just need to end the relationship. Uh, but it does mean that there is a role for negative emotions in healthy relationships, I think, at least. Um, and there's always a risk that a fight will get out of hand and damage the relationship we have with anybody, a partner, a friend, a colleague. And you need to be aware of that risk. And, and you also need to be aware that that risk can lead us to avoid conflict whenever possible. That's the risk that stresses us out about the prospect of even kind of a mild confrontation. Uh, but we tend to underestimate the risk of not airing out our differences. So when we're not exposing our relationship to a relatively minor stress of a candid disagreement, two dangers, I think, loom. One of them is that our frustrations manifest themselves in kind of low-level griping and sniping. Uh, researchers sort of disagree on, on um, a lot of things, but one thing they, they find really clearly is that there isn't any useful role for passive aggressive behavior. Indirect opposition is a waste of time, whether at home, at the workplace, whatever. It doesn't motivate anyone to change. It doesn't solve any problems. It just corrodes trust. Uh, if we kind of go to it often, it's because we want others to know when we're hacked off or when we're kind of upset, but we're too anxious at the prospect of confrontation to be upfront about it. So that's a danger. The other danger is that we stop learning about each other until one day it's too late. So what you can learn from a, a conversation or an argument, well, you can learn what or who that person really cares about. You can learn about how they see, them, see themselves. You can learn about how, what may be different between you and, and them. Um, so you're missing, conflict is a missed opportunity when it's not engaged. So in, what I'm trying to say in this episode is that conflict can bring us closer together and can be really valuable. It can be valuable, though, under the right conditions. And in the right conditions, conflict can unify people. And it can be a force that people, for people to consider other perspectives. It can be a way of getting people to think more deeply about what they're trying to accomplish. It can be a way of generating new ideas. It can make you smarter. It can make you more creative, etc. But the conditions that need to be met for that to happen are, one, there needs to be alignment and agreement at the relationship level of a conversation. And two, people need to be in a challenge state, not the threat state. If people are in a threat state, it'll be destructive. If people are in a challenge state, it'll be good. So can you have conflicts where there is agreement and alignment at the relationship level of conversation and where people are in a challenge state, not a threat state? That is what, will, that, what kind of makes the kind of conflict that will bring us closer together. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. That's it for this episode. I'll be back uh, shortly with some more stuff.